Meaux was the first city in France that heard the earliest doctrines of the Reformation publicly preached and explained. And it was here, really, that it is said that the first fruits of the Reformation era gospel were gathered. This is a city about 25 miles east of Paris, um, northeast of Paris, and it is not far from what was known then as the Flemish frontier. This region is not, that's now Belgium, um, known as Flanders. This is a place that was full of working class people of wheelwrights and wool carters, of um, fullers and cloth makers, of artisans. The bishop of the area, whose name was Guillaume Brichonnet, was a man of high standing. He was born into a, an aristocratic family. And he evidently became a convert to these new doctrines that were being espoused by Martin Luther not far away in Germany. He's been described as a man of noble family and imposing address. And he had been twice sent by Francis I, the king of France, as an ambassador to the Vatican. It's said that when he returned to Paris, he returned less a son of the Roman Catholic Church than he had been before he left. Some have concluded that like, like Martin Luther, he may have had his eyes opened to the massive wickedness of Rome and to the utter shallowness of their high church ceremonies, which even today look, look like royal processions. Well, when he returned from these diplomatic missions to Rome, he was astonished to find an interest had been awakened. He was astonished to find a change in the hearts of the people that had been brought about by the preaching of these new doctrines of salvation by faith alone. And so the universities along his route from Paris, Rome to Paris were full of debate and commotion on the subject of the gospel. The hearts of, of the normal working class people in his own diocese, his own city, were, were greatly moved by the good news of the gospel which was beginning to reach them. This was in 1521, just four years after Luther had nailed his famous theses on the door of the castle church there in Wittenberg, the very year in which Luther appeared before the, the Diet of Worms, Diet of Worms. The bishop, of whom it is said was a, he was a pious, humble, but timid man, he sought an interview with one of the most prominent French theological professors and Reformation sympathizers named Jacques Lefebvre in order that he might be better instructed in these new doctrines. And this aged professor, he placed a Bible in the bishop's hands and he assured him that it was the Bible and the Bible only which ever leads the soul back to the truth as it was in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before there were schools and factions and ceremonies or traditions, the truth was the means, and the Holy Spirit was the power of salvation. Guillaume Brichonnet searched the scriptures with great diligence, and with the Lord's blessing, they became a great source of comfort to him. And he wrote this in a letter to a friend. He said, The savor of divine food is so sweet 
that it renders the mind insatiable. The more one tastes, the more one desires it. What vessel is able to receive the exceeding fullness of this inexhaustible sweetness? Some have said that the Reformation never really came to France. That's not exactly accurate. The doctrines of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, did come to France. And yet evil men tried to completely stamp it out by jailing and murdering anyone who even looked at it longingly. Who even even looked at the gospel. Yet the gospel took root in the hearts of men like Guillaume Brichonnet and Jacques Lefebvre. And as a result of their, their quiet, almost underground ministries, it eventually led to the salvation of a young man named Jean Calvin, who fled France and eventually established a ministry in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm guessing that you've heard of the influence of John Calvin on the world of Christianity even to today. But the first fruits of gospel revival were gathered in a small town of normal working class people. This should come as no surprise because this is how the Lord has continued to work throughout the ages. This morning we're coming back to our study in 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 15. And this chapter is really, I think, one of the most important chapters in the book. In this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. So we're going to be looking this morning at verses 20 to 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. But I want to read it from the beginning. So I'm going to start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says this. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's just stop and ask God to help us to understand his word today. Lord, I do pray that you would, um, I pray that I would decrease, that Christ would increase. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, help us to understand the things that you would have for us from your word today. That where I am unclear, that the spirit would be clear in our hearts, in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It is important to remember that throughout this book, but especially in this chapter, Paul is writing to church members. Um, He's saying essentially, why would you want to be a part of a church if you don't believe that Christ has risen? This is a core tenet of the Christian faith. In fact, we could go so far as to say that it is absurd for anyone who claims to be a Christian to deny the resurrection. That's absurd. And when we say resurrection... We mean the actual, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We believe that this statement is true, that it is not a metaphor or some kind of symbolism, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now in that previous section that we looked at a couple of weeks ago through verse 19, Paul lays out there the logical consequences of the arguments of those in the church who were beginning to deny a resurrection. They were beginning to believe the lies that were being spread that claimed that there really isn't a resurrection after all. And there are, frankly, there are churches all around us, all around the country, all around the world that believe and teach that Jesus rose spiritually in our hearts, that the resurrection is just an idea, like the power of positive thinking. And those who believe in such things are fools and led by false teachers, those who claim that Christ only rose metaphorically. But as we saw, Paul laid out in that section three ifs that we must wrestle with Three ifs that those who are beginning to deny the resurrection must uh, grapple with. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Because Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. He rose literally. And if Christ has not been raised, then the gospel, the word of God, is powerless. Your faith would be a delusion and the message of the church would be just, just simply deception. Additionally, this means 
that the eyewitnesses, even the apostles themselves, are liars and blasphemers, and even God is unworthy of worship if Christ has not been raised. But it gets worse. Because if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. And if that's true, then those believers who have gone before us are still in the clutches of death. And all hope is lost. And we are of all people, we Christians, are the most pathetic creatures imaginable. Having no hope and without God in the world. But... As he says here in this section that we're going to look at today, the message of the gospel and therefore the message of the church is the fact that Christ has been raised. He is risen indeed. And by God's clear design, Jesus Christ leads the way through death to resurrection for all who are in him. Christ defeats, he destroys death, and he rules his kingdom until he finally delivers all those whom the Father has given him to the Father. So the image here as we read through this is of a great warrior king marching before his people, leading them home in victory into the eternal Sabbath rest of the promised land. And presenting these newly freed captives to the Lord who has promised time and time and time again, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so this section, verses 20 to 28... We can see here the, really the theological and, and practical benefits for believers who trust in Christ's resurrection. And we're going to put these under two headings. First, Christ is first fruits, And then second, Christ reigns. L- let me explain. Christ is first fruits. Look again at verse, I'm going to read verses 20 to 24 again. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I want to go back to this because first and foremost, Paul states emphatically here that Christ's resurrection is a fact. Paul himself is an eyewitness, remember. As were all of the apostles, and as we've said all along, it bears, and this bears repeating, this is the central claim of Christianity. Peter, in writing his first letter, uh, begins in his introduction by saying this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, likewise, Paul says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. These men, Peter, Paul, John, all of the apostles, 
among others, were willing to suffer and would eventually die because of this fact. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This phrase that he opens this paragraph with, it's just a simple phrase. It's, it's but in fact, or some versions might say, but now. They're both acceptable translations of the phrase. It's just a simple, it's a common expression. But in Paul's writing, it's often followed by profound statements of gospel truth. One example of this is Romans chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. He says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Profound statement of gospel truth. Verse 20 here is no exception. Don't miss this profound nature of what Paul is claiming here. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It has already occurred. He has been, past tense, he has been raised. And, and Paul uses this, this past tense language to speak of Christ's resurrection as being first fruits. And you're probably familiar with that expression, first fruits. This, this is a phrase that um, it looks back to the Old Testament law and the harvest offerings that the people of Israel were to bring before the Lord. Leviticus 23 verses 9 to 11 states the specific law like this. This is what he's referring to when he uses this phrase, first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So on the first day of the week, the people were to bring a portion of the harvest as an offering to the Lord. Now, this idea of first fruits. Later on, it, it sort of evolves to simply just mean first. But what it really means, and, and the way that Paul is using it here, is, is that this is the first and representative part. So when the crop comes in, it's garden season. You've been doing some canning, I'm sure. Some of you have. I've, I've seen cans on our counter at home. Um, when the crop comes in, you, you are excited about that very first tomato right? The very first cucumber, whatever the, the, whatever the fruit, vegetable is that you planted, you're excited when you start seeing the very first fruit. But we also know that sometimes the best fruit comes a little bit later in the season, right? After it's had a little time to, to grow a little bit more or to ripen or however that kind of nature stuff works. And so an offering of first fruits doesn't necessarily mean the first stock that the combine touches. It means that which represents the whole harvest, that which best represents what's in the garden. We could put it this way. The first fruits is that which you would take to the county fair to put on display. That's the idea behind this. It's the best. It's that that you want people to see, that you would bring before the Lord to offer him. 
So Jesus Christ, he says, is the first fruits, the first and foremost representative of the resurrection. Now, a little while ago, we preached, I preached through John. And you remember Lazarus. We looked at Christ raising him from the dead in John chapter 11. See, Paul is not saying that Jesus is the first person ever to raise from the grave. Rather, that his resurrection involves the rest. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of God's renewal of all things. In fact, Lazarus and all of the other resurrections that we see in the New Testament, they they pointed forward to Christ's resurrection and we look back on it. So we could say it like this. Christ's resurrection was the pledge of the full harvest of the resurrection to come. And in order to explain all of this and to connect this with those who have gone before us, who have fallen asleep, Paul says, died, he compares Christ's resurrection with Adam's sin and the consequences. Now in Romans chapter 5, Paul will explain a little bit more fully that Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden brought death into the world. Brought sin into the world and death through sin, he says. Here, he's just simply pointing out that this one sin had a profound and universal effect on all who come after him. And the same applies to Christ's resurrection. So just as a physical death came inevitably from Adam's sin, so physical resurrection comes inevitably from Christ's resurrection. So, So look at verse 21 again. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now don't miss here that Paul is is referring to Jesus Christ as a man in the same way that he says that Adam was a man. These were real men who existed in history. So Jesus Christ was truly man, and his death was the death of a man, and his resurrection was the resurrection of a man. Jesus Christ is truly man, and yet he is truly God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 speaks of specifically his humanity like this. Hebrews 2, 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all Uh, were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. See, it it is important that Jesus was truly man, fully and wholly man, completely man, because if the if the man Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, then neither will we. Now I'm also saying, and I hope you're catching this, Jesus was also, is also fully, truly God. So even now, we're either, under, we're either under the old order of Adam or we are under the new order in which Christ leads the way as the first fruits. We need to, we need to be careful to point this out because we're not universalists. Right? Notice the phrase in verse 22. It says, those who belong to Christ. Sorry, verse 23. It says, those who belong to Christ. All those who are bound to Adam share in his fate. 
Banishment from Eden, alienation, condemnation, and death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world and through, through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. John chapter 3, verse 18 says this, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now on the flip side of that, all of those who are bound to Christ receive reconciliation, have condemnation removed, and will share in his resurrection, eternal life. Notice again, verse 22. Do you see the difference it says in that verse between all die and shall be made alive? Paul is saying that those who are in Christ will be made alive, will inherit eternal life. Christ has paved the way for us. We could say that he is our head and there is a proper order. And Paul uses that word order to explain these things. And so to understand this, look Look carefully at verses 23 and 24 now. Let me read these again. 23 says this, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now remember, he's using the idea of firstfruits as a picture here. And so we can say it like this. The harvest begins at Christ's resurrection. He's the first fruits. But it doesn't simply come all at once. See, while it is guaranteed by the empty tomb, the full harvest doesn't come until the end of the age when Jesus returns to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. Now, these things can be hard to understand and and Paul doesn't get very deep here into eschatology or what we call end times. But he does lay out some things that are easy for us to see. See, the word order there, it refers to a detachment of soldiers. And it's clear that there is a progression with Jesus Christ leading the way. So the first fruits of the resurrection was when Jesus Christ arose in or around 33 A.D., then comes the resurrection of those who belong to him at his coming, that is his second coming. So first comes Easter, then comes second Easter. We're still waiting for that. Then comes the end, verse 24 says. And what follows makes it clear that by the end, his kingdom will have conquered all of God's enemies, including the greatest enemy, death itself. And this brings us to the second benefit, which is Christ's reign. Christ's reign. Let me read again verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, I want to I emphasize here how difficult this passage is to follow. 
the repetitive words, especially subjection and etc. So if you're not getting this, or if it seems like I'm repeating myself or, or just otherwise unclear, bear with me for a few minutes and hopefully the Lord will help us. At the end of verse 24, that previous verse, really kind of the second half of that verse, Paul makes it clear that Christ's resurrection will culminate in the, in the dethronement or, or, or destruction of all of the enemies of God. So, so look at verse 24 again. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God. I keep saying of God. To God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay? These are the spiritual forces of evil, even death itself. And as Paul continues there in verse 25, he's actually drawing on imagery that we find in the Psalms, specifically in Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David says there, Yahweh says to Adonai. Those are two different words that they translate into English, both as Lord. But if you look at that in the Old Testament, the first Lord is all caps. That is Yahweh, that is God's proper name. David is saying there in Psalm 110.1, Yahweh says to Adonai, or we could say Jehovah says to my master. And the New Testament repeatedly interprets this as God the Father saying to God the Son, to Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a... This was a literal ancient practice of how kings would treat their, their conquered enemies. And so the imagery here is of Jesus Christ, the victorious king, humiliating his conquered foes by using them as his own footstool. They're down on their hands and knees in front of Jesus as he rests his feet on their back. And of course, in the included enemy there and this is the point of this, is verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the imagery, the picture that we're supposed to see here. And notice all along, all through this, this, this is all Christ's action, right? He's the one working these things. He comes, he delivers, he dethrones, he destroys, and, and he must reign, Paul says. He does not reign passively from a distance, but he remains actively engaged in vanquishing all of the powers that are the enemies of God. Now, now we have to remember this. This will help this portion here make a little bit of sense. Paul is talking to Greeks. Corinth is in Greece. He's talking to Greeks who had converted to Christianity. And the ancient Greeks are famous, even today we understand this, for all of their gods. And their structure of gods had this sort of, sort of wild family tree. And so there were gods who had sons and they fought each other and, and it can all be very confusing. But Paul is careful to clarify in verse 27 that the true God, God the Father, he isn't somehow becoming subjected to God the Son or, or, or he's also trying to say that Christ's reign doesn't infringe on the sovereignty of God. 
He's trying to be careful to keep their attention on the one true God and not make comparisons to the so-called gods that they've left behind. After all, we're talking here about the one to whom belongs all power and authority. Let me see if this helps us to understand. Remember how Paul prayed for the Ephesians? The Ephesus was a similar, very pagan city. Temples and gods, all kinds of gods. The Romans basically took the Greek gods and just renamed them. Listen to how Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. He prays like this. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ, God the Father has, has put Jesus Christ on his throne. And Jesus reigns. And Paul sums up all of this in verse 28. Look, look again here now at verse 28. He writes, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The powers, the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces of evil that had rebelled against God and to the uh, rebelled against God and so the son Jesus Christ himself willingly put himself in subjection to the father we could say it like this let me use the words of the apostle paul though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when, and when God subjects all things through the raising of the dead to Christ, by putting him on the throne, by exalting him, Christ will hand the kingdom to God. Picture again that victorious warrior coming back to the kingdom with freed captives, presenting us to the Lord in order that, as John Calvin said, we might cleave 
completely to God. This is, this is God's total undivided power over all of his enemies. To deny the resurrection is to deny God's power even over death. There will come a day when the victorious king, Jesus, will lead us into the very presence of the Father. And listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Can you picture Jesus as a victorious victor leading us back to the throne? Leading the freed captives, promising to, to dwell with us, wiping away the tears. And he who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of water, the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so we can say this, Jesus Christ reigns over all, unchallenged. Jesus Christ reigns over all, unchallenged. We have this hope within us today, the hope of a resurrection. It's not an empty hope. It is a hope that is, even in the words of Revelation there, the Lord said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Jesus Christ reigns over all. Pray with me. Father, this is our prayer that we would trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we would believe that you so loved the world that you so loved us, that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would call upon the name of Jesus Christ, would not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. Lord, this is our only hope. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we were bought by Jesus Christ, that we belong body and soul to our Savior who has died for our sins, was buried, rose again, and ascended to heaven where he sits at your right hand and always lives to intercede for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would remind us of this truth, that we might be a people of hope, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we come to your table, Lord, 
We rejoice. We don't presume to come on our own righteousness, but on your mercy. Father, we are not worthy so much as to gather up crumbs from under your table, but because you are a merciful and gracious God. Father, you have invited us. You have called us your own children, given us a seat at your table. And so we come today, Lord, we come to proclaim Christ's death until he returns, knowing that he is risen. He is risen indeed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.